Hello, welcome to Lunar Poetry Podcast, I'm David Turner. How are you lot? Can you hear that? That's right. There's nothing there but nature. I've moved to Wiltshire. Lunar Poetry Podcast is now based in the southwest of England where it's very quiet and there are ducklings at the end of the garden. Wood pigeons and swifts. Something squeaking in the tree. Today's episode is a bit of a break from the norm in that the entire episode is dedicated to one guest. This is because our Arts Council funding runs out in August and after that we'll be returning to one episode a month and dedicating more time to individual guests. So I thought I'd get you used to the idea. Today I'm joined by poet and editor Rishi Destadar. We talk about his collection Ticker Tape out through Nine Arches Press and the editing he's done for the Rialto and Josephine Corcoran's blog and other poems. After this episode we've got two more Arts Council funded episodes to come after which we'll be uploading single interviews on the first Friday of each month. I'd love to know what you think of the series so far, so if you go over to www.lunarpoetrypodcast.com you can fill out a feedback form in the audience feedback section of the website. Over there you can also download a transcript of this conversation. As always, you can subscribe to us via SoundCloud, iTunes and Stitcher, or wherever else you access your podcasts. You can follow us at Lunar Poetry Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and at silent underscore tongue on Twitter. And do remember, independent podcasts in general, not to mention ones about bleeding poetry, have no marketing budget and rely completely on word of mouth recommendations. So if you like what we do, then please tell folk either through social media or in person. Artists and arts programmers and organisations need this kind of support more than ever. What with the government and that. Thank you smiley face. On to the conversation. I recorded this episode in my flat in Kennington, South London, which isn't as quiet and idyllic as here in Wiltshire. For a start, the flat is under the Heathrow flight path and the P5 bus runs regularly outside, but Rishi admirably holds his own among the vehicles, creaking chairs and neighbours' kids. I won't keep you any longer. Here's Rishi. Then me for a bit but mainly Rishi. Enjoy. I'm Rishi Dastidar. This is a poem from Ticker Tape. It's called A Shark Comes to Dinner. Well, it's not a shark as such. More the nebbish simile Woody Allen used in Annie Hall. The one about how Marshall McLuhan has to keep moving forward to massage the message. Anyway, the dorsal fin is frantically stirring the pot fretting that the lobsters, squash and carrots haven't been chopped finely enough according to the proto-hipster aesthetic because, would you credit it, him with the teeth is afraid to bleed. Potluck kinfolk style, she'd said. And he'd flapped a happy yes, not knowing what two out of those three words meant. But hey, what did it matter? He'd seen enough master chefs to know you just had to do a journey, a chocolate fondant, and some alpine microherbs, then your life changed. Imagine the shock when he discovered that an induction hob could be as dangerous as a pedestal, and she wasn't going to undo her apron for any old Jawsy come lately, brandishing Elizabeth David's come-hither Mediterranean words. Calm, she commanded, as she swept him onto the table and bade him wait upon her homemade pastrami. 
He looked over and tried to drool attractively. You've never seen a mammal wish so fervently to tell Linnaeus to stuff himself, become a slice of rye bread, gherkins, English mustard on the side. Thank you very much, Rishi. Thanks for joining me. Him with the teeth, I really like that. (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps we could start just by talking about the collection, Mm. ticker tape, and how it came about. So this is developing its own creation myth and story now as well. So I think we have to go back to about the summer, spring, summer of 2015 or so. I'd sent some poems to Jane Kermain at Nine Arches for Under the Radar, her magazine. And she'd taken a couple of those. In her note, she'd said, and whenever you're ready, I'd like to offer you some mentoring, a couple of hours where we can talk about whatever you want. Now, me being me, I rather exaggeratedly interpreted that as, ah, I wonder if. And so towards the back end of 2015, I pulled together about 60-odd poems just sort of sent them to her, basically, and my note said, I hope this is okay for mentoring. I think I've got enough here for a bit, but it'd be great to get your view on that. Didn't hear from her for about, you know, three months or so. And then spring last year, so 2016, I get this note back saying, the offer of mentoring is still there, but I'd really like the book as well, <laughs> which I was not expecting at all. And so I was completely bowled over and it took me what, all of about five minutes to say <laughs> yes, basically, which in of itself is a great tell. Of course, I only found out a few months ago that when Jane said, send me some poems, she was actually expecting about 15 yes, rather yeah. than 60. So I rather bumptiously just sent her four times yeah. more Here's my than, I, than I should have done. Now, I don't know whether there's a lesson in there about best foot forward or whether they're you know I have a classic tale there of a bloke over interpreting the instruction. There's an important discussion to be had there for people who haven't had contact with publishers Mm. or magazines much and then how much of your work do you send to someone you know invited or unsolicited. Only a couple of publishers are clear enough on their website I think about what they expect. Before we talk about that, maybe we could talk about what the time scale was to then throw all this together. Because I, I think yeah, people yeah. sometimes feel, especially when a book comes out, it can sometimes feel like you've done that in a couple of months mm-hmm. and everyone published it yeah. seems like a genius. Because and, <laughs> and it's not at all. I mean, you know, just flicking through, the earliest poem in here is from about 2011, 2012. Yeah. You know, Matchstick Empire is probably, you know, the earliest that's in there. And it wasn't complete as a manuscript to send to Jane until These Things Boys Do, which arrived pretty much at the end of October... No, actually closer to December 2015. Okay, so it's four years. It's four years of accumulation and then certainly another... I think I'm remembering this correctly. Wayne Holloway Smith said in an interview that I think Alarum was a collection of five to six years and that seems four four to six, perhaps seven years seems a a bit more of a realistic timeline. That uh, that sounds about right. I'd characterise it as almost three phases. You've got the phase where you're generating and you're writing and there's drafting, redrafting within that 
there comes a point where that phase finishes because you've got a sense that, okay, I've got enough now and I've got enough that I think coheres and is coherent and, and starting to get the outline of the book. Then there is this sort of middle phase where you are putting the book into some form of shape. For me, that phase was relatively quick in terms of moving from these things boys do being finished to actually going, okay, that was the thing that I needed. What does at least an initial order of the thing look like? And that was a couple of months. And then the process from Jane accepting it to it coming to a finished form is another year or so. So clearly that middle bit feels very, very fast and that sort of feels like it is the bulk of the work for you as writer. But actually the longer year once manuscript is accepted is actually its own job of work in itself. Mm. But it doesn't feel it certainly didn't feel as me to be an onerous job of work because I wasn't doing it on my own. I was doing it with wise counsel and input from Jane with yes. a sense of definite goal of what we're trying to achieve mm. here. How much effort was put into trying to find like a coherent theme that runs through the collection? How did that start? Because obviously that I presuming this comes in the, like the last year. Like when stuff starts to get put together, is that right? Or Potentially. I, I've been shying away from saying there is a big theme yeah. in there. I know there's been a bit of a vogue towards it to try and almost say, yeah, this collection is... And I find it interesting because almost this thing... Because you can hear almost in the way that people talk about it, that's moving the idea of a collection to something that's almost novel-like yeah. because suddenly you can say 60, 70-odd pieces of work cohere to this idea and that's fine absolutely but lots of collections don't do that and there's no need that they should a collection can just be a collection of the best poems that that poet has written at that particular moment and they do not have to be presented with any particular theme or overarching yes, idea yeah. what the writer's concerns are actually then come out through that certainly when pulling it together i had no grander idea than what is my best work? Now, within that, it's clear that certain subjects, certain topics, certain ways of addressing the world keep coming back again and again and again. There's no way that I would claim this is one big vision of a particular thing. Viewing editing as curation, yeah. I suppose, that's where this danger mm. comes from, doesn't it? There, there, there must be a theme within a, a book. I'm sure if anyone read the collection, or anyone who has read the collection will see things, but then they're pretty much just seeing things within your yeah. artistic practice, aren't they? Rather than, I, I suppose that's where my question came from. Did you just allow the work to fit together because it's all written by one person? I went into it with uh, knowing that a large chunk of the poems are in some loose or tight sense as quote-unquote romantic. You know, going back to that slightly older definition of not just love and lust, but you know, awe and wonder at the world as well. I knew that that was going to be a strong strand in it, and my initial thinking was, well, okay, there's going to be some sense of traditional boy-girl arc in there. That's almost inevitable and inescapable because that's going to be a large chunk of the work. But then, knowing that there was going to be such a chunky political strand in there as well which i definitely wanted because i wanted that to be a marker to actually say look this is part of what i write about it's going and it's not going to be a part that can be ignored and so i wanted that to be a statement and so immediately there you're balancing two things which are 
pretty hard to cohere. And then when you've got Ticker Tape itself as the title poem as well, which is some sits somewhere between that romanticism, somewhere between that politi you know, political aspect, but also is a very urban poem. And so then suddenly you've got those three things there. Mm. How, you know, you could, I could have spent time trying to develop an overarching way of tying those much more closely together. But actually... I suppose the longing in all of the poems... I was going to say unifying theme. I don't mean that. No, but, but, you know, but it, it, yeah, it's commonalities. Yeah. It's resonances. Yeah. It's themes. Mm. And what really unlocked the book during the editing process is when Jane started to break it apart and put it back together and say, it's not an arc, it's a series of loops. Oh, that's a nice way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. And when she said that, that's then when it suddenly all cohered, because suddenly then that gives you permission to not worry about saying, we've got to get from A to B. Mm. It's fine to go from A and then back to A, and for these things to stand alone, and then to go move into another mm. cycle. And so in a certain sense, I think I, I often think of the book as being three movements. You've got this opening movement before Ticker Tape, which is you know, as traditional as I get in terms of quote-unquote love poetry. Then you have this monolith in the middle, and then you've got this more political stuff after that, the state of the nation stuff. And then, almost as a coda, the sort of quiet plangency of the front comes to the back again. Because I wanted to round it off in that yeah. way. And I definitely knew where I wanted to start and where I start, wanted to end. I'd always had Summer of Camus' Youth as the opening, and I always had Theseus the Ship as the end. Because I definitely wanted those moments of quietude. I knew I wanted the swell of the book almost, mm. to be that sort of from something quiet to get as loud as it does and then dip away again. And so I'd ensured that I'd given myself those fixed points. And so then it was a case of making sure that everything else fitted yeah. in. This idea of looping rather than over this sort of longer arc that you would perhaps assume that's the way a collection mm. would be put together, do you feel like you would have reached that point without Jane's input? So this is what I want to talk about the importance of no. the, the mentoring or the, I, the, the partnership with Jane. Yeah, that. the book Ticker Tape is a classic example of how editorial care, support, attention, intervention makes something 5, 10, 20 times better. Mm. Every writer needs an editor and it doesn't matter what genre what art you're writing in. There is no writer that cannot be made yes. better without, with some form of intervention. The trick of it, as an editor, is knowing what form of intervention that is and how to deliver it in such a way that it works and, isn't, you know, and that the relationship is a productive and mutually beneficial one. That's mm. hard. Yeah, because every writer is different, every editor is different. And so if you're an editor with multiple poets, multiple writers, how do you develop enough flexibility to work in the way that's maximally optimal for that particular writer? Mm. Now, Jane might disagree, but I think I'm relatively easy to edit in the sense that because I have been an editor as well, yeah. I know what, relatively speaking, the task is. I know it's not an attempt to try and change my aesthetics or try and to get me to write in a different way or do any of these sorts of things which are common sort of mistakes yes, when people yeah. start. It's, you know, I understand that what we're attempting here is a shared project in trying to make this thing better. Mm. And so when you start on that basis of good faith, 
it makes the process easier. Yes. I think often people approach it as this thing is done. All you need to do is proofread it and typeset it. Yeah, that for me is a bit of a, well, it just spoils, not spoils, it's a missed opportunity. There is always going to be someone out there who's going to, who can make the thing better. So why wouldn't you take advantage of, of that? I almost view it as, you know, you find a co-conspirator. Yes. You know, someone whose interest is to make the book as good as it can be. Are there any other examples that you could talk about? In, in terms, terms of what jet or what having an editor that you felt like you could trust um, and having that sort of mentoring as well and also do you feel because there was an first an offer of men- mentorship mm. do you think that it made the editing process any different perhaps perhaps um i imagine that if i'd gone with a different place or gone to a different house having a colder relationship might have made that a bit trickier. Mm. And so already having this pre-existing editorial relationship through under the radar, that sort of helps. And there's that familiarity with the work. I knew at some level it would be tricky to find a simpatico editor just because the, wor- yeah, the work is, put it politely, it's, it's at one degree from removed from the mainstream currents of most <laughs> British poetry. And... I was going to resist any attempts to try and pare my style down or shave the excess off to make me sound more traditional or more like current voices. That's not what I'm here to do. That's not what I'm here to write. So that fundamental need was going to be someone who got the idea of what I'm trying to do in terms of maximising what's going on in the poems, trying to cram too much into them you know, trying to really fill them to bursting, even before we get onto the whole making up words and the over italicization and all the rest of it. Yeah, all, the, yes, all yeah. the rest of it. So there need to be that fundamental, you know, grasping of that, mm. and which Jane gets. You know, Jane very much licenses my exuberance and a lot yes, of my yeah. enthusiasm. What she's very good at is knowing when I'm going too far and when it's starting to move to the stage where it's just actually getting tiresome and being larded on but also knowing that actually for it for that effect to have its maximum impact the underlying structures the underlying shapes need to be solidly in place Mm. i can imagine that there is a version of this book where it is tremendously tedious and wearing because you know it's looser it's much more in free verse I haven't worked as hard in terms of stanzas and line breaks and actually bringing shape to it. I'm very, very aware that part of the reason I can get away with writing the way that I do is precisely because there is some formal lyric discipline Mm. lurking in the background somewhere. And again, part of the editorial process was knowing where to accentuate that and where to put that control in. We're definitely going to get on to talking about editing a bit further later on. I just wanted, because I can't take my eyes off the cover, (laughs) and it's become painfully aware that people can't see what we're talking about. So please Google Ticker Tape by Rishi, and actually might, if it's possible, put an image of the cover in the episode artwork so that people can see it. 
we chatted briefly about this at Peckham mm. Pelican when you did the Nine Arches yeah. um, showcase, showcase yeah, through yeah. Vanguard Readings recently about how it's really refreshing to see that a handful of publishers at least are really putting a lot of effort now into book design. I really hate it when people tut at me and say, but you shouldn't judge a book by its cover because that is bullshit. Because <laughs> I was just wondering how much, because I know that the visual look of the yeah. cover is important to you rather than it perhaps wasn't a press decision. Yeah. It was yeah. something that was going to occur anyway. But Yeah. Part of that backstory comes from the fact that my day job is in marketing and design yeah. and branding and stuff. So I, I, yeah, I live in this world a lot. The actual impetus came from my colleague Sophie at work, who I sit next to and is the creative director of the agency. And she was playing a lot of Monument Valley. Mm. And she was, you know, at the time that we were thinking about the cover, just really entranced by the visuals. And she said, you know, your book cover should be feel something like this and be something like this. And I literally took that as... Yeah, the brief to um, my sister, who is an illustrator and animator, and said, well, do you want to have a go at bringing this to life? And she had read an early draft of the book as well. That's what came back. I knew pretty much immediately it was right, because she'd, you know, between Sophie and Rhea, they'd captured the essential bit of the book, which was, you know, I've created, you know, in my mind, Ticketate speaks to some form of urban utopia. Absolutely it does. And the fact that it was this multi-hued, bright, glossy, glowing thing was just absolutely right. Because at some fundamental level, it really brought to life not just my voice, but also the way that I wanted the voice to be seen. Just a very basic reaction. It's got that sort of Sim City Yes. Ellen yeah. sort of looked at it as this idea that you're building, mm -hmm. you're just putting blocks down and building yeah. up what you. Exactly. But it's also got a touch of uh, the Eshers about it, mm -hmm. hasn't it? It doesn't yeah. quite look like you could walk around it. No. And so you've got, so you've got that looping sense yes. again, yeah. Yeah, which we come back to. Yeah. You've got that sense of techno futurist mm. you know, dynamism in there, which through jargon and through some of you know, subject matter that the poems get to as well. But just actually the brightness as well. Mm. You know, I think of a lot of the book as quite joyful. As much as it's undercut by longing, there is a lot of joy in there as well. And I, so I wanted that sense of upbeat and optimism there. That's in part why the Ticker Tape is the title poem and the central motif, because yeah, those things are intention, aren't they? The, the sheer fun and frivolity of having a massive parade to celebrate some amazing achievement and success. But you also know there is the come down after that. There is the emptiness after such a thing. There is the clean up and there mm. is all the stuff that is left behind. And I wanted those two things intention there, but I wanted to flag the upbeat and the optimism as much, if not more, than the downbeat stuff, because I think the downbeat is the sort of traditional way that a poet would go. Again, this comes to thinking about difference and thinking about my position in relation to how and where everyone else is writing. It's just instinctive. If everyone is slightly more downbeat and saying, look how grim the world is and look how, th you know, I don't want to go, well, you know, it's not all bad. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And just as a point of difference. Maybe. I think it works really well. Just the colour and there is a, a sense of optimism, both 
on the front cover and the back cover. So no matter what happens in between, you can yeah. get you can actually perhaps get a little bit darker, can't you? Yeah, exactly. Because you're and implying that you're yeah, not. and we did yeah, and there is um, sitting on my hard drive somewhere an earlier version of the cover where it's um, where it's a black background mm. and yeah, you know, and the city is sitting on that sort of uh, yeah on that darker thing, and it looks super cool, mm. but it just looks that little too cool. Yeah, and it doesn't quite give you you know. I am not cool, I am not a cool poet, you know, and it, there's something lovely about the gaucheness that comes through this, mm-hmm. the pop of colour here and, and the neon as well, that again speaks to the book yes. and speaks to me. I think we'll take a second reading, please. Okay. Oh. From the beautiful book. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, as I talked about it, I don't think I've read it properly before, so let me read um, These Things Boys Do. And yeah, let me tell you that Catherine Angel, the writer and critic, she hosted a seminar on desire at Somerset House a couple of years ago, and I went along to that. And it's, um, you know, Catherine's such an interesting thinker and an interesting writer, and it was really interesting conversation Mm. that people were having. And so I was just scribbling lots of notes, and I knew that there was a poem in there. And as it turned out, that poem had to be in the book, but it just wasn't coming. It just was taking forever mm. to arrive. And then it finally did. And I think it's quite, it's one of the longest poems that's taken to emerge, you know, from initial sort of conception and knowing mm. that it's there to um, arriving. And that was about, yeah, 11 months or so. Let's hope it was worth it. It's called These Things Boys Do. I am an eel passing far out, a slitherer in the seminar. I do not volunteer that I was once accused of stalking a dulcinea. I didn't know how to put my rotting catch of love in a net, drag it to sell to the implacable in Tsukiji fish market, Tokyo. Hina reminds me shedding clothes is not the same as shredding Englishness, but we might all have to be trial lawyers in bed. Capital wants us, wants us to be fluidly equable. But desire only comes from a friction, a touch, an impression, a catching, the necessary luxuries. No one mentions the angels in muscles, the joy of dopamine, being tied up with scarves that have attention knitted into them. We need to get out of ourselves, kidnap the brain, duct tape it still. Do you remember the ticker tape of pleasure? that parades through you when you're touched just right. The body is good business, announces my she-god. Thank you very much. That's enough of the book. Yep. <laughs> Puts to one side. <laughs> we should talk a bit about the editing. That you mm. So the two big ones are the Rialto, where I was, along with Holly Hopkins, the second cohort on the editorial development programme, and that was couple of years ago now, so 2015, 2014 maybe, but you know, there's been a couple of cohorts since then. And that involved working with Mike Mackman to put together one edition of the magazine and then Holly and I were let loose on another edition of the magazine where we effectively put together a quarter of it. 
The Other Place is and other poems where I help uh, Josephine Corcoran out with various bits and pieces. I guess you know, that's a, a different type of editing that's going on there in part because you know different medium, print versus blog, yes, yeah. different editorial ethos and approach and what the you know, what Joe jo is trying to do with and other poems as well. So they're both good tests and stretches of you know, editorial skill, editorial judgment as it may be. I just wanted to say just now, if people don't know And Other Poems, mm. they should get over. Is it just andotherpoems.com? Andotherpoems.wordpress.com? Or no, it should know. It is andotherpoems.com. Yeah. I should know that, shouldn't I? <laughs> yeah. What we'll do is we'll say it's andotherpoems.com andotherpoems.wordpress.com. Yeah. I'll just edit out yeah, which one. It's yeah, it's um, Or I'll leave the whole thing. Yeah, exactly. You can find it. Just Google it. Yeah, 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 just Google the, and other poems. The search engines are very, uh, um, very helpful. And the philosophy there is just very straightforward and simple. Joe publishes the best of what's sent to her and what, yeah, and what she likes, and it doesn't have to be new or unpublished or whatever. It's just it, yeah, it's a chance to, to share... Uh, yeah, for people to share what they feel mm. is yeah, good, interesting, their best work and what have you. And I think the way it's become such a clearinghouse, uh, and I don't mean that negatively at all, but a really good chance for people to catch up with poems that they might have missed first time around in other places. There's a lovely sense of poets use it as a, as a sense of, look, this is a thing I was really proud of. Can I, yeah, can we, can we see it again in circulation and stuff? And I came aboard last year to help Jo when she did an open call for submissions uh, and she had, um, yeah, loads. Um, and so I helped uh, edit and select and, and choose and choose bits and then publish. And then this year what I've been doing is curating a showcase of Complete Works 3 poets as well okay. so I've asked them to select some of their favorites and then I've been publishing them uh, every Friday for the last couple of weeks now. yes so we're just coming up to the end of that in the yeah in the next two three weeks or so mm. and so yeah and so clearly there's different things that happen when you know when you're sifting through an open call as opposed to the complete works three stuff is not a commission it's mm. not commissioned per se but it's you know that call was very much uh i'd like your three to five best poems please or the ones that you think are best or whatever you're writing that now and i will choose mm. yeah my favorites out of those it's a different task in the sense that you know that the cohort the you know the guys are working at such a high level yeah you don't have to worry about will they meet sufficient quality yeah they're all yeah whatever they yes, send yeah. is going to be good enough to publish the considerations then come in around are these the favorite aspects of their voice you know do i like you know, are these those particular aspects of their poetics that i like is it roundly representative of their poetics for an audience that might might not have heard them how do i balance the range of subjects and concerns because i don't want 8 9 weeks where thematically the poems are similar. Now, chances are amongst the cohort that's not going to be the case, but I need to at mm. least have that in the back of my mind. And just very straightforwardly as well, a balance of you know, rhythm and pacing over the, over the couple of weeks as well, in terms of you know, just thinking if, I, you know, if I've got two fairly traditionally traditional-looking poems one week, 
and I'm going to then push you the next week with something that's a big Ashbury-like block of text mm. and yeah, things like that. And so yeah, there are those sorts of considerations as and well. How far do you plan in advance with that? Uh, so I asked the guys in April, March, April, and then we started publishing beginning of May mm-hmm. so but then in terms of the run as the poems go out how far ahead are you looking like sort of your schedule of publishing I do you allow yourself any flexibility to yeah, switch, a switch little, things around a yeah. little but generally I'm scheduling and editing and prepping for posting about two three weeks in yeah. advance so if I do suddenly have a fit of I actually I want to change things around I've got yeah. enough time to do so but actually the guys have been so good and responsive in terms of when they got back and stuff that it all sort of that it's all come together relatively straightforwardly I did <laughs> shows you how far you know the online world is not actually that different from the offline world I did actually for the um, I guess it's 10 12 that I've chosen ultimately I did actually just put them out on the floor and just actually see how yeah. how they were feeling the in classic, order the classic editorial yeah. shot of exactly. walk, walking through the poem yeah. Yeah. even though knowing that it's going out online yeah. even it's not going to exist yeah. as um, as people's pages and I still find that that's a really good way of just actually working through the rhythm mm. of something even though I know that people are not going to consume it in this whole people are going to consume it in yeah, weekly episodes. Yeah. But what I really like about the blog format, and especially and other poems, is that the archive is there. Yeah, you can mm. you can access it as a blog a block. Sorry, if you mm. if you wish to. So you've got that. I suppose that's one of the major differences, isn't it, between putting out publications, is that people may only ever see that that yes. one magazine, and yeah. it has to work coherently through that. And yeah. there, there is obviously a there will always be a callback to the history of the publication, but it will stand so, alone. Th- so, I think this part of this betrays how I was trained. I, yeah, because my first sort of proper jobs were in journalism, and I was a sub-editor. Most of my training was done on print. Yeah, and so I used to be able to. Yeah, I used to know my way around Quark Express. Very, yeah, with with a dangerous facility, and so I could um, you know lay out pages. And one of the things that I was taught when being trained was, you know, when you're looking at a page spread, you're always having to be aware that you're trying to grab the attention of people who aren't necessarily that interested in reading it. And so what you have to do to the page to actually allow people ways in that they might want to. So obviously headline, obviously picture captions, pull quotes, you know, strap lines, whatever it might be. And that training has never left me in the sense that whether it's print or online, part of what you're thinking always has to be, I have to assume that people are not going to be interested. How do I make sure that I get at least enough of a sliver of your attention to make sure that you stop and at least peruse this? And so Mm. this is why when teaching and in workshops, I bang on about so much about titles and I bang on so much about first lines, especially in an online context when it is just literally, you can have this disembodied poem floating about that's been tweeted, that's been Facebooked, whatever. There isn't necessarily the context of you know, where it comes from. You've chosen to engage with it, so you might do it. How are you going to make sure that person stops and goes, duh, 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 duh? Um. 
Yeah, I'm definitely going to misquote this person because I think it was Wayne Holloway Smith quoting Luke Kennard and I'm not sure Wayne could fully remember the quote yeah. anyway but it's in the episode where the, uh, Lizzie interviews Wayne but Luke said something along the lines that a big, one of the biggest problems with modern poetry in the UK at the moment is it assumes an interest upon the reader into yeah. their life or their work yeah. and it's it's yeah it's just that idea of how do you communicate and so, engage with people isn't it so I, I this might be I, I feel like a rant gathering <laughs> um, <laughs> so it sounds paradoxical but I do try and retain the perspective that most of the people who I am trying to reach and who might be readers are not poets now I know concretely, I know whatever it means data-wise, we, that's not the case. We know that mm-hmm. most poetry publications, whether online or offline in the, in, you know, in the UK, are consumed basically by fellow practitioners. Yes. My fear is, my worry is that that not warps our editorial judgments, but you know, to a degree sort of skews the way that we think, because it's a different beast to serve a fellow working practitioner than it is to serve the interested general reader. Now, there is absolutely a discussion to be had about how, for example, the fact that British poetry suffers from this lack of interested general reader who doesn't want to be a poet, because it's not necessarily healthy for an entire art form to only be consumed by people who are producing that art. Mm. I love the notion and the fact that I thought it was some American piece that I read the other day. Yeah, it was one of those, you know, poetry does make any money, why is it still thriving? And yeah, the argument that the poet put forward was, well, it's thriving because people read, people get inspired, people want to continue and participate in the conversation. That's absolutely right. But I'd add the rider to that, that the conversation is stronger is if you have interested lay people who don't have an axe to grind in terms of being poets themselves coming to the art form and enjoying it and participating in that world as well. That all being said, I try and retain at least that idea that amongst the potential readers that are out there are people who are interested in poetry, consume poetry, but don't necessarily write it themselves. And I think that slight wrinkle gives me a slightly different perspective when it comes to some of my editorial mm. choices. And not least, one of those is being, we can call it tougher, we can call it being shameless, we can be, call it being more marketing-driven, but just actually banging my fist on the table a couple of times and just saying, who the fuck do you think is going to read this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who is going to read another poem called Rain? <laughs> Christ <laughs> almighty, you know? Yeah. At least trying to give people and leave people with the impression that it's okay to sell your work through the title, through the first line. It is not a diminution or corruption of your poetics or your art to try and at least grab someone's attention. Mm. I'm sorry if this sounds heretical. No, but... no, but it it's, it's really rings uh, true with yeah. the way that I built the foundation for the podcast was that I was safe in the knowledge that a lot of poets that I knew would listen anyway. So you have your audience, your sort yeah. of guaranteed audience, which is still relatively small. But I wanted other people to come and listen. Yeah. I wanted friends and family to come and listen who have absolutely no interest yeah. in poetry until you present something yeah. of interest to them. 
and then open, not open their eyes, that's patronising, but... I think you have to operate on the basis that most interested readers are intelligent enough that with a degree of contextualisation and framing it correctly, mm-hmm. they will get what you are doing. Yeah. Again, yeah, that comes from my training. I trained at the Financial Times. You know, you know that most people don't engage with financial news unprompted. Mm-hmm. There, there is a work reason or whatever. And so you know that you have to, without question, explain some pretty complicated stuff simply. But once you do, they will go on and chase those hairs themselves, mm. to throw in another metaphor. Again, yeah, that's part of what underlies my thinking. Yeah, you frame things properly, you set things up properly, that should be enough to bring people through. And this is not saying it needs to dumb down or cheapen. No, absolutely. It's yeah. just saying that you need to have enough ways in. It's just really simple things like not assuming knowledge on the reader or the listener, isn't it? You know, don't assume that they know what a form is or what the context of Precisely. a certain poem is. Um, yeah, and again, another thing I was taught, you know, someone is going to read something for the first time always yes. and will not know what you mean. And so even however much you know it you owe it to them, to that potential first-time reader, to make sure that you've done enough to let them in. I think that's the perfect place to stop. It's a really good message, really strong message. I think a lot of programmers and organisers need to bear that in mind when they're claiming to the Arts Council that they're engaging new audiences. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Thank you very much for joining us, Rishi. It's been great fun chatting. We're going to finish with a poem, please. Okay. I always end with this. I don't think I've actually tried it inside. So if um, so, this is going to be because when I do this on stage, I bellow it. <laughs> Let's see how it sounds when I sort of semi bellow it. I always introduce it by saying um, everyone in the creative writing world has always used this word to describe this object, and if you do one thing, just never use this word to describe this object again. This is called gunmetal. The sky vibrates like Mussolini's mistress's dentures in a Waterford tumbler. The sky throbs precipitately pink like the ululating oestrogen of a Take That fan. The sky is a precious, precious green, Edmund, a precious, precious green. The sky is as cold as an ersatz gazpacho made out of a homeopathic Aldi tomato. The sky is as playfully obtuse as an obscure collection of Flaming Lips b-sides. The sky is as rigorously gloomy as a Bank of England economic prognostication. The sky is an edition of Knowles House Party, full of gunge and the sound of a booming god laughing at our pratfalls. The sky is a flying change of leg in the dressage. The sky is a towel in Google chat, endlessly referring to its own digital circularity. The sky is not the sky, it is the sea, having got terribly confused at Job Centre Plus. The sky is an engine powered by steam and onions and polystyrene chips. The sky is just fucking awesome, okay, and doesn't need a weapons-based simile to make it so. (laughs) Thank you very much. That was great. Links to where people can find Mm. you and books and stuff I will put in the episode description. I think it's the easiest way rather than reading off. But just to repeat Rishi's collection that he's been reading today, ticker tape is out through Nine Arches Press who have got some really great stuff coming out this year. Um, not least Stairs and Whispers, which is an anthology we've been talking about a lot and will come up again in two episodes' time. Ah. Thank you, Rishi. Thank you very much.